Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. Talk 7. Sleepwalking into World War One with Lorna Thomas. So we're going to start, first of all, that's a picture drawn by Ferro, an Italian artist of the major powers involved in the war, greedily grabbing at control of the old world. It was done in 1916. We're all familiar with the First World War, and I'm sure that there are a number of you who know far more about it than I do. We're familiar with the images, the commemorations, the acts of remembrance, which quite rightly so. Many of you have probably had members of your own ancestral family involved in the fighting. My axe to grind, and one of my reasons for the interest is that four of my great uncles died in the First World War. My grandfather, my father's father, fought on the Western Front. And in fact, he came home on leave in August 1917, and my father was born in May 1918. I'll leave you to do the maths, (laughs) otherwise I wouldn't be here. My grandfather lost both of his brothers. His younger brother died in Mesopotamia in Iraq in 1917, and he's buried in the Commonwealth Grades, uh, Baghdad. And his youngest brother was part of the British Expeditionary Force, and he died on the 24th of September 1914. He has no known grave. He's commemorated at La Forêt sous Joie on the south bank of the River Marne, and he shares that memorial to over 4,000 who died in the early fighting from August to October 1914, who likewise, the officers and men, have no known grave. David Lloyd George, we're familiar with him as Prime Minister, said that the war has not been deliberately unleashed but Europe had somehow slithered over the bank into the boiling cauldron of war without any trace of apprehension or dismay. So why did it happen? Why then? What part of it was a concerted plan? Um, Was it inevitable? Lots of questions, really. Did Britain and the other great powers literally sleepwalk into what became a catastrophe? So many questions. Was it predetermined plan on the part, at the very least, of, for European domination by one power? Did we slither over the brink without a focus plan, or were we pawns, and I, when I say we, I particularly mean Britain, in someone else's chess game? In the space of exactly one month, we went from the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in Sarajevo, on the 28th of June, 1914, to the Austro-Hungarian declaration of war on Serbia on the 28th of July. Europe went from reasonable, peaceful prosperity to a conflict that would bring down four empires, those of the Ottoman Empire, Russia, Austro-Hungary, and Germany. Contemporaneously, it was described as the war to end all wars. It led to the mobilisation of over 70 million military personnel, making it one of the largest wars in history. We're familiar with the images of us Brits and the Germans, of course, but there were 
other areas of fighting. The colonies of the great powers were drawn into the fighting, taking the war from just the Western Front out to the Eastern Front as well. And there you have a picture of a British soldier at the grave of one of his comrades at Gallipoli in 1915. And of course, the New Zealanders and the Australians suffered very heavy losses at Gallipoli. But there were also South Africans to mention as well. Hence, it became a global war, not just because it, there was fighting in other countries, but of course because parts of other empires gave their troops to fight, and it fairly rapidly became global. It was one of the most deadly conflicts. 10 million estimated military personnel and 7 million civilians died. Not forgetting the Canadians, Indian soldiers, and West Indians. Not forgetting also our four-legged friends. There were millions of horses who were commandeered in the First World War, and of course, likewise, millions of them died. So it affected a lot of people. One in 16 men of the age group, 15 to 49, died. The, for, the war affected everyone. A survey was done in 1936, which identified at that time 32, but the numbers written, risen to 53, what they called thankful villages. Of the 20,000 odd villages in Britain at the time of the First World War, only 53 sent their men to war and had all the men come back. Only 53. There were none in Surrey. There were none in Hampshire. Our nearest thankful village would be East Wittering in Sussex. So the war effect was absolutely devastating. And of course, following from the end of the war was the great flu epidemic, which took another 50 million people, and that had been generated by the war itself as well. It would also, thanks to the harshness of the peace settlement signed in Versailles in 1919, sow the seeds for a second and even more devastating war, uh, the Second World War, which in turn gave rise to the Cold War. It would be difficult to imagine, for example, Italian fascism, Nazi Germany, or the October Revolution in 1917 in Russia without the First World War. Indeed, the First World War unhinged the global system. The why and the how of the events that led to 1914 are therefore immensely significant. Was it inevitable after Sarajevo? Or did Europe's monarchs and politicians have an element uh, of choice in their decisions? In many ways, the subject is fresher now than it ever was before. So how could the death of one man lead to the death of millions of an unprecedented scale and ferocity? The debate is as old as the war itself. Finding the answer to this question has exercised historians ever since. It was even debated before the fighting had actually begun, with many of the powers positioning themselves in a favourable light. In other words, don't blame us, we, we didn't start it. There have been, according to one notable professor of history, Christopher Clark, some 25,000 books written on the subject, and no, I haven't researched them all, I'm afraid. It's very slack of me, I know. However, arriving at a convincing consensus is almost impossible. For the moment, then, let's have a look at what was taking place in the world of 1914. 
Many saw the years leading to 1914 as the late flowering of youth and the late flowering of a whole old world, old regime. The gin and tonic and tennis brigade, if you like. The youth, as described perhaps by Vera Britton in, in her book, Testament of Youth. Young men with moustaches, smoking pipes, dressed in coloured striped blazers and boater hats, polling punts accompanied by vivacious young women, dressed in high neck dresses, of course, uh, with full length dresses. None of this miniskirt stuff. In polite skirt circles, language was almost as tight as the corseted ladies' clothes themselves. Words like damn and bloody were considered outrageous. Decent was an adjective of high praise. Rotter was a noun of condemnation. The upper classes existed in something of a golden haze. However, you probably would have had to have been deaf and blind to suppose that the years, the early years of the 20th century were that tranquil. In fact, they were a firmament of passions and frustrations, of scientific and technical advances, and of irreconcilable political ambitions. Here's just a few. You have the first man-powered flight by Orville Wright and his brother in 1903. Einstein's theory of relativity, 1905. Marie Curie isolated radium in 1902. And a chap called Leo Bakeland invented Bakelite, which was the first synthetic polymer in 1907, so led to all the plastics and things we have today. So he's guilty. Many homes were now being lit by electricity. Telephones were becoming popular, as were motor cars, gramophones and cinemas. Mass circulation of newspapers soared, which gave them an unprecedented influence in social and political life. <clears throat> Socialism became a major force. Likewise, there was the, the simultaneous decline of liberalism into an almost irreversible decline. And of course, women's suffrage votes for women. Very contentious, as women did gain the vote, personally, I think, as a result of the First World War. But certainly women's suffrage had been rumbling for many, many years prior to. Many began to realise that the old order couldn't last. It was plain that the old days were coming to an end and that the future would be decided by the will of the masses, or if not the masses themselves, and the people who could manipulate them, not the whims of the traditional ruling classes. And don't forget that this all took place, 1900 to 1914, in a similar time scale that divides us from 9-11 in 2001. Timescale's very similar. So how did peace become war? How did the world move from possibly to likely war, to highly probable war, and to inevitable war in such a short space of time? So let's take a closer look at the trigger. It was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, dear old Franz Ferdinand wasn't much loved by anyone other than his wife. He was a rather corpulent 50-year-old, one of the Habsburg's 70 Archdukes. 
He became heir to the throne after his cousin, Crown Prince Rudolf, shot himself and his mistress at Mayerling in 1889. Some of you, and I confess, yes, I went to the cinema to see Omar, Omar Sharif in the film Mayerling. The very one. I'm old enough to remember. Um, the Emperor Franz Joseph resented his nephew. Others considered him an arrogant, opinionated martinet. Basically, poor old Franz Ferdinand, had, to use a medical term, was a grumpy old man. <laughs> but his abiding passion, oddly enough, was shooting, which, considering the way he died, was um, somewhat ironic. He married Sophie, Sophie Kotek, in 1900. She was intelligent and assertive, but her lack of royal blood meant that she could never become empress. Although very much in love with each other, it meant that they were frequently suffering humiliations of etiquette by court officials who really didn't give a toss for their feelings at all. Mr Grumpy, Mr Grumpy and his political and social views were conservative but vigorously expressed. He loathed Hungarians. He regarded southern Slavs as subhumans, referring to the Serbians as those pigs. He hankered after the recovery of Lombardy and Venetia, lost to Italy in his lifetime, and wanted them back for the Habsburg Empire. He was not PC. The Tsar Nicholas II recoiled from Franz Joseph's lack of restraint, especially on racial matters. Both Franz Ferdinand and Sophie were Catholic, favouring Jesuits and showing hostility towards Freemasons, Jews and liberals. Again, really not PC. Archduke Franz Ferdinand nonetheless cherished one prudent conviction. While many Austrians detested Russia and welcomed the prospect of battlefield showdown with Russia, Franz Ferdinand didn't. Rather prophetically, he was convinced that a war between Austria and Russia would rather result in the overthrow of the Romanovs, or the Habsburgs, or both. Ironically, in a way, had he survived the assassination, he probably was one of the few figures who could have pulled the whole thing back together and averted some of the hostilities escalating. However, Franz Ferdinand's status as heir apparent ensured that he and his wife had to undertake imperial duties, and that included entertaining generals, politicians and foreign dignitaries and doing foreign trips. A visit to Sarajevo offered an opportunity for them to do royal duties together. It wasn't terribly high up on the dignitary list, so it was a bit of a, a B-list visit, and she could drive in the same car as him. And it was only just over the border, so for them, it was a bit like going to, to Winchester. No, no detriment to Winchester intended. So on Sunday, the 28th of June, 1914, the royal couple arrived by train at Sarajevo. They were planning on taking an automobile into the city, which would be followed by um, a police patrol just to be safe. The car's top was rolled back to allow the crowds a good view of its occupants, and it seemed that the royals were being welcomed with open arms. So far, does this remind you of any sort of grassy knolls kind of situations? It does have some connotations. You need to bear in mind that Sarajevo was very Bosnian, a very Muslim town, and Mr Grumpy had previously vocalised very different opinions and views. 
if the result of the assassination hadn't been so tragic, it could almost be described as comic and even bungled. There were six conspirators, all of whom had been trained by a Serbian military police chief called Colonel Dragutin Dimitrovic. He was also had the nickname of Apis, which is, uh, I think, an image of a bull, a large bull. He organised the Serbian terrorist groups known as the Black Hand. He was not a nice man. Murder was very much his game, and he really wasn't a nice chap to know. The assassins lined the route of the car as it made its way to the city. And, of course, it included the chap we know better as Gavrilo Princip. They all had instructions to kill when the car reached his or his own position. They were all men, so sorry, um, hadn't recruited any women at that point. Sarajevo was, of course, Princip's hometown. The first conspirator lost his nerve and let the car pass by. The second man was a 19-year-old and he got his chance. He hurled a hand grenade at the Archduke's car. However, the driver saw the projectile coming and accelerated away quite quickly. Unfortunately, or rather fortunately for the Archduke and his wife, the bomb, or the grenade, actually had a 10-second delay and it rolled underneath and exploded under the fourth car in the procession. Several people were wounded and many spectators, but the royals survived. The second man then tried to kill himself with a cyanide pill uh, so that he couldn't be caught. The problem was the cyanide pill that they'd been given by the Black Hand had passed its expiry date. (laughs) So he just ended up vomiting profusely before jumping into a nearby canal to end his life. But the canal was only two inches deep. (laughs) And a sick and soggy assassin was arrested by the police. Princip, by this time, was fed up with the whole process and he decided to take himself off for lunch. The assassination attempt had been botched. Not only had the emperor and his wife survived, but the police had caught the assassins. And a rather forlorn and hungry-looking Princip went to a local restaurant. And he was sitting there eating a sandwich when, lo and behold, Mr Grumpy appeared again. Franz Ferdinand and Sophie had decided to go to the hospital to visit some of the victims immediately after the attack, and they were making their way back. Their driver decided to avoid the city centre, took a wrong turn. One of those streets passed right by the restaurant that Princip was sitting in, enjoying his sandwich. Princip took his opportunity. He jumped out of his seat, ran out of the restaurant, and just as the driver realised he'd made a mistake and was reversing, fate took a hand, the engine's car stalled, the gears locked, and Princip fired his gun. He was only a distance of some five feet away. They were killed by his shots. Almost immediately, Princip likewise attempted suicide, but guess what? He got the same cyanide pills, out of date. And so he tried to shoot himself, but just before he did so, the police arrived, captured him, whisked him off to prison. His fate, well, he was only 19 years of age, so he was too young to suffer the death penalty, and in any case, the government didn't want to make a martyr of him, so he was given a 20-year prison sentence, and he died at the age of 23, uh, having contracted tuberculosis. The sandwich could possibly be said to have sparked the First World War, uh, a little bit of levity. Map of Europe. 
tucked away in the bottom middle there, Sarajevo, is literally just over the border into Syria, how close it all is. The protagonists, I think we all know who they are in the main. I, by the way, haven't spent too long dwelling on Italy, but I'll, I'll come back to that. Austria-Hungary, Franz Joseph, emperor. When his nephew and heir was murdered, Franz Joseph decided that military action was required to cut Serbia down to size. Prior to 1914, the Serbian separatists had been regarded pretty much as um, naughty boys stealing apples. Uh, they, they really weren't taken seriously. But by 1914, the geopolitics of the Balkan Peninsula had taken a rather different turn. But still, Austria-Hungary seemed to procrastinate, losing time to investigations and diplomacy. And it was the 23rd of July before Serbia was presented with a harsh ultimatum. Its demands included the denunciation of separatist activities, the banning of publications, and organisations hostile to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, cooperation with Habsburg officials, and suppressing subversion and a judicial inquiry. The judicial inquiry is important because it gave them the reason to turn it down. Serbia's measured reply was to agree to all of the demands. The only caveat, as I've just said, was that the joint Austro-Serbian judicial inquiry should be subject to Serbian law. However, the Austrians rejected, and on the 28th of July, mobilised troops in the Balkans. So why did this 83-year-old emperor and his Vienna government take such a hard line? First of all, their suspicions of Serbian complicity were at least partly justified. More than two-fifths of the Bosnian population was ethnic Serb, many of whom yearned for independence and union with a, a greater Serbia. Some of the secret organisations, like the Black Hand, were based in Serbia proper. By 1914, the relationship between Austria-Hungary and Serbia was toxic. An even more powerful reason was because many of the Austrian government and military felt the time was opportune. Unless Serbia's intrigues were stopped, they felt, the polygot empire, made up of at least 11 ethnic groups, was in danger of disintegration. They feared a pan-Slav movement, spearheaded by Serbia and backed by Russia, and determined, in the words of the foreign minister, to tear away with a strong hand the net in which its enemies seek to entangle it. Yet, Franz Joseph was only prepared to risk a war with Serbia and Russia because he knew he had the full support of his fellow monarch, the Kaiser. The Austro-Hungarians had tried to cultivate relationships with Germany, Turkey and Greece in the years prior to 1914 in order to frustrate these Serbian am ambitions. In the years before 1914, also, Austria-Hungary had become accustomed to backing up its diplomacy with a bit of military power bit of military threats, its generals regarded war with almost a reckless indifference. It's only a war, we'll, we'll deal with them. War is regarded as a mere tool for the advancement of national interests. They blindly ignored the implication that they could all end up in Hades as a result, or we know in hindsight. As the Habsburg minorities became ever more alienated, the more the austro Hungarian imperialism became heavy-handed and there were open divisions fostered 
amongst the, the Muslims, the Serbs and the Croats. And of course, this is something that's boiled over in the 20th century and something that we have been all too familiar with ourselves. Most minorities were denied their political rights, whilst in Vienna, people waltzed. But Franz Joseph's dominions were not offered so much frivolity. However, the argument that Austria-Hungary was a moribund political entity whose disappearance was only a matter of time may well have been fostered by their enemies in, in hindsight as well. Contemporaries trying to suggest that efforts to defend its integrity during the last year before the war were in some sense illegitimate. In fact, during the decade before the war, the Habsburg lands passed through a phase of strong economic growth and it corresponded with a rise in general prosperity. Most inhabitants associated the Habsburg state with the benefits of orderly government, public education, welfare, sanitation, and so on and so forth. Vienna was also urged by Berlin to adopt harsh policies. Again, it was this bolstering view of Germany supporting Vienna. Both the Kaiser and General Malk had assured Austria-Hungary on the 28th of November 1912 that they could fully count on Germany's support in all circumstances, something that historians have subsequently uh, referred to as the first blank check. So Germany, in a way, was writing a blank check saying, go ahead, you do what you like, we'll back you. The Austro-Hungarian uh, minister was Holzendorf, a military man, field marshal and general of staff from 1906. For years, he had repeatedly called for a preemptive war against Serbia. He was apparently both stupid and intensely energetic, a very bad combination. <laughs> His policies were described as war, war, war. Oddly enough, he'd been defeated in all his major campaigns. <laughs> As Max Hastings, the historian, described him, it's hard to imagine a man less suited to his role. An epic incompetent, he was also an extreme imperialist. He wanted the Habsburgs to dominate the Adriatic, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Balkans and North Africa. This was a recipe for disaster. So, on to Germany, the Kaiser. After the forced retirement of Bismarck in 1890, the young Kaiser became the dominant influence in German politics. He authorised the disastrous Weltpolitik, world policy, of the late 1880s, 1890s, ushering in a naval arms race against Britain uh, that Germany couldn't win. The effect was to dr drive a resentful Britain into the arms of her former enemies, France and Russia, complete, completing the encirclement of the great powers. Just a week after the assassinations, the Kaiser responded to the Emperor Franz Joseph's assertion that Serbia needed to be eliminated as a political factor. Austria was their only dependable ally, and Germany feared that a huge increase in Russian military expenditure would jeopardise its secret strategy of avoiding war on two fronts by first defeating the French and then going back to defeat the Russians. Of course, this is known as the Schlieffelen Plan. It was a hammerhead blow to the French to, to take Paris, cause the fall of France, and then go back and fight uh, the Russians. The ideal outcome for the Kaiser of nine, the July crisis of 1914 was a localised Balkan war 
uh, that neutered Serbia, bolstered Austria, and split the Triple Entente. But it didn't happen. The Kaiser and his advisers on the 8th of December 1912 had debated Haldane's report. Haldane was the British war minister. He put forward the idea, the insistence, that Britain was committed to preserving the continental balance of power, which is what all the alliances had been about. Third player in this, um, in this trio, or in this quartet, uh, leader was Russia. The leaders of Russia shared with the Kaiser's court the belief that the two empires were almost fated to participate in a historical struggle of Germanism versus Slavdom. The Germans made no secret of their contempt of the Russians. The Russians were resentful of the Germans' cultural and industrial superiority. The two countries' most conspicuous flashpoint was in the Balkans, Turkey. Following Austria's declaration of war on Serbia, the question on everyone's lips was how would Tsar Nicholas II react? No treaty impelled Russia to come to Serbia's aid, nor did it have much of an economic stake in the Balkans, but Russia did have a vital strategic interest in the region, notably the passage of its trade through the Straits of Constantinople, and indeed a strong independent Serbia to counterbalance Austro-Hungarian forces in the event of war. Control of the Dardanelles entrance to the Black Sea, through which 37% of Russian exports passed, was critical. A weak Ottoman supervision was acceptable in St. Petersburg. German dominance was not. And yet, it was the very key objective of German foreign policy. So the two were like two trains on the same track. They were destined to collide with each other. The most telling issue for the Tsar, though, was in the immediate aftermath of Austria's declaration during the June crisis, was the strength of Russian public opinion. The Tsar referred to the troop mobilisation, calling up reservists to increase the size of the European Standing Army to three or four times its former level. And that mobilisation caused problems. Russia hadn't planned for a part mobilisation. It had planned for full mobilisation or not at all. And so the Tsar found himself in this quandary of having started to mobilise and involve all of the people and, and spurring them on to fight the enemy, but not the full thing. So on second thoughts, the Russians were faced with only two options, to cancel mobilisation during the crisis or to have full mobilisation. Eventually, the Tsar chose the latter, uh, mobilising the entire Russian army on the 30th of July. Sorry, I should also point out that the decline of the Ottoman Empire, they had lost Greece, Albania, Montenegro, Bosnia, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, <coughs> and those were all on the borders of Russia. So hence, when the Ottoman Empire lost those states, Russia started to panic because you've got a hostile German potential movement into those areas. George V was on the throne, and I'll come back to his family connection, shall we say, in a moment. If Britain stood aside while the central powers prevailed on the continent, its interests would be directly threatened by Germany. It's something that they had been 
really trying to avoid. The whole idea of the Treaty of, of uh, Paris in 1839 was to maintain a neutral Belgium on the other side of the English Channel to us to make sure that we had at least a neutral party on the other side of the Channel. So the possibility of Germany rearing its military head, taking over and becoming the dominant power, was not a good sign for Britain. Britain had also promised to defend the neutrality of Belgium at that treaty. Thus, the German invasion of Belgium made it inevitable that Britain would fight to uphold international law and the rights and freedoms of a small nation. Asquith, who was the Prime Minister at the time, said, we are fighting to vindicate the principle that small nationalities are not to be crushed in defiance of international good faith by the arbitrary will of a strong and overmastering power, of course, at the time referring to Germany. He also incidentally commented, and I just found it quite amusing, not particularly pertinent here, but he said after the war that the War Office kept three sets of figures, one to mislead the public, one to mislead the cabinet, and the third to mislead themselves. <laughs> and I thought it was rather good. The British Foreign Secretary at the time was Sir Edward Grey. He was British Foreign Secretary, traditionally portrayed as the peacemaker and, and genuinely tried to intervene. He was very keen on mediation, that mediation was urgently needed if or those concerned did not wish to have things become a European catastrophe. So fairly long-sighted that he could see what was going wrong. But it's said of him that he gave mixed messages uh, on the never a strong message to say Germany back off. It was more, well, we probably will defend Belgium but because we're, we have promised we would do so, but we're not bound in law to do so. So this was a kind of mixed, mixed message. Any final doubts about the messages, though, were dispelled on August the 3rd when Grey told the House of Commons that the Belgian government had just been given the ultimatum by Germany to facilitate the passage of German troops through its territory or face the consequences. For Grey and the government, the only course available was to resist German aggression. In the event, Britain declared war on Germany at 11pm on the 4th of August, ostensibly because of Germany's violation of Belgian neutrality. The pretext was a useful one for the cabinet because right up until the 2nd of August, the cabinet had been divided as to whether to support Belgium or not. A far more pressing reason to fight was to prevent Germany from dominating the continent and winning control of the Channel ports, as I've already indicated. On the 3rd of August 1914, as Foreign Secretary, Gray looked out of the window at St James's Park. The, the famous quotation is, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our time. France, as far as the French were concerned, the general European situation in June 1914, Raymond Poincaré, the President of France, the situation in 1914 was considered to be less threatening than it had been in 1905 or 1911 when there were acute tensions between the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente. Raymond Poincaré loathed and hated Germany and caused support for Russia to be the central pillar of French foreign policy. 
France didn't want a war with Germany in 1914, but by pursuing his foreign policy, he ultimately kind of emasculated their choices and, and made it impossible for them to do nothing else but go to war. Also at the, the time, at the height of the July crisis, the French president set off by warship for a planned state visit to his chief ally, Russia. With him went his experienced prime minister just four weeks into the job. For the next eight of the 11 days, the two heads of the French government would be effectively incommunicado as critical decisions were being taken in Vienna, Berlin and St. Petersburg that would propel Europe towards war. Could their presence in Paris have made any difference? Probably not, because Poincaré, who took the lead in the foreign affairs, had made it clear to the Tsar that France would back Russian support for Serbia, even at the risk of war with Germany. The post-summit joint communique was explicit, saying the two governments were in entire agreement in their views on the various problems which concerned for peace and the balance of Europe. The critical backing by France was what gave Russians confidence to stand behind Serbia. This is like a pack of dominoes that one leads onto the next and the next. When this in turn resulted in the Russo-German war, there was no possibility for France standing back. France was being drawn into the, the conflict. France duly rejected Germany's ultimatum and began its own mobilisation, though the army was ordered to keep 10 kilometres back from the German border. And lastly, Serbia. Serbia, as I said, was very much in control of Apis, and the Black Hand influenced everything. It pervaded every institution of Serbian government, including the army. The Serbian Prime Minister, Nikolai Pasnik, dominated the Serbian politics for two decades of the 20th century, but he had formed no fewer than 22 cabinets during his numerous period in, in office as prime minister. So in a very short space of time, you've got all this turmoil. He regarded peace as a threat to stability, but in a society that was riven by competing interests and obvious lack of continuity, the civilian government lacked the authority to remove or imprison a peace. Some historians regard Serbia as a rogue state, but there's very little hard evidence to suggest that the government in Belgrade worked with a peace. On the contrary, the Prime Minister was dead set against him, but very weak in powers. The principal drivers of Serbian policy were to consolidate the Russian-backed expansion of Serbia during the Balkan Wars and achieve the dreams of a greater Serbia, which included unification of the lands with large ethnic populations. So you can see that all of these pieces make jigsaw, that alone, stand alone, don't really come to much. But when they start to be put down on the jigsaw board, they start to fit together. The, the interests of the countries were bound to conflict. We've staged the players 
So we've got the actors, for the most part, on the, on the stage. Except, I must apologise, I have left Italy out. It's just I, there wasn't time to include everyone to the full, but we've got the main players sorted out. So, was there a concerted plan? If we stand back from the main players and their agendas, and the events that actually precipitated the start of the war, and we look at some more modern post-war theories, uh, because everybody's got a theory. Everyone's got a favourite theory. But if we stand back for a few moments, we find that there's more theories than there were participants. But I've tried to highlight just a few here. So, first of all, Queen Victoria's legacy. One undeniable fact, all of the monarchs in Europe were closely related, A to one another, Queen Victoria was sometimes called the Grandmama of Europe. Her children populated the monarchies of Europe. And there was hardly a continental court that didn't boast at least one of her relations. During World War I, there were no less than seven of the old Queen's direct descendants at war with one another. Two more of her Coburg relations were involved, all on European thrones. Before it happened, this family of kings and their subjects assumed that war between the crowned heads was nigh on impossible, because they were family. How many of families get on with one another? <laughs> Another recipe for disaster. So one can almost appreciate why the Kaiser at the outbreak of war in 1914, exclaimed that Nicky had played him false. And it was very personal. For the rulers of the world's three greatest nations, King George V of Great Britain, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia on the one hand, and the German Kaiser on the other, they weren't just cousins, they were first cousins. They were very closely related. These boys knew one another. They played with each other when they were youngsters. Whereas you and I all play cowboys and Indians, these guys played capture countries. But they were all related. If their grandmother had still been alive, Kaiser once said that she would never have allowed them to war with each other. And that's probably right, actually. Instead, World War I proved once and for all that the family ties between the reigning houses of Europe were more or less defunct. Their kinship simply snapped, a bit like a cord of cotton. As the storm of war broke over their heads, it just snapped and never to be restored. The funeral of King Edward VII was an amazing spectacle. No, I wasn't there. For its pageantry, Winston Churchill described that it was the old world in its sunset, and it was really captured by the funeral of the king. This was an occasion that was celebrated as and called the Parade of the Kings. There were over 50 royal horsemen, a swaggering cavalcade of emperors, kings, crown princes, archdukes, grand dukes, and mere princes followed the coffin trundling through the streets of London. Here was a moment 
of supreme monarchical glory, or so it seemed. Republican envoys, no matter how powerful the countries they represented, even France and the United States, were relegated to the end of the procession. They were the nobodies, they were the also-rans. Who, seeing this collection of royalty cluttering by in all their paraphernalia, could doubt that the institution of kingship was flourishing? Looked pretty good. Whatever the powers of these rulers, wherever, whether they were autocrats, as in Russia, or whether they were constitutional monarchs, in, as in Great Britain, their prestige and position remained almost intact. For those watching or taking part in Edward VII's funeral, none of them could have imagined this blaze of splendour marked not a royal high noon, but a royal sunset. In 1910, Europe's sovereigns, or at least their advisers though, had the foresight to adapt themselves to the more liberal tenor of the time. After all, the French Revolution only a century earlier had taught them a lesson. Because the burgeoning middle classes had demanded legal constitutions, the monarchs had granted them. Where there had been a clamour for extended suffrage, many had agreed in varying degrees to grant suffrage, at least to men, not to women. By assimilating new ideas, monarchists had come to almost portray themselves as symbols of democracy. This was quite a good PR job before Saatchi and Saatchi. However, the leaders of these same monarchies remained stubbornly blind to the gradual spreading republican and revolutionary movements that were taking root in their countries. We've already mentioned some of them. Germany, Russia, Russian Revolution, 1917, all the problems in Germany between wanting to keep communism out of Germany and losing the royal family. This was the cauldron that was preceding 1914. Our own much beloved Keir Hardy, James Keir Hardy. He was the founder of the British Labour Party and served as its first parliamentary leader from 1906 to 1908. Socialist parties were emerging all over Europe. Oh, and they were in Italy as well. It was highly unlikely that these socialists would condone a belligerent foreign policy. Think back to what we said before. Germany, milita militarianism. Austro-Hungary, militarianism. Britain, ramping up the military. Socialism is in contradiction to that in its broadest terms. Because the soldiers who do the fighting come from the working classes. They're the ones who are at the pointy end. And they would never have marched for a war of aggression. Hence, much of the activity that had preceded not the First World War in 1914 was couched in words of it's a defensive coalition, a defensive alliance. We're not doing this because we're being aggressive. We're doing this to defend ourselves. And therefore, any war that might break out would be a defensive war, not an aggressive one. 
The French and Belgians, the Russians, the Serbs and the British were all convinced that they were indeed involved in a defensive struggle for their just aims. The Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente both couched their reasoning in defensive, not offensive terms. But what were they doing? Whilst the politicians were saying, it's defensive, the military were on the offensive. They'd got all this wonderful new uh, technology to play with. Big boys' toys. Dreadnought, launched in 1906, wiped any other battleship. All battleships from other countries, once that was launched, were redundant. It was bigger, better, had more firepower. And so what happened? An arms race. By the 1870s and 1880s, all of the great powers militarily were preparing for large-scale war. Although, of course, an unexpected one. As an island, Britain focused on its navy, quite understandably. Germany, France, Austria, Hungary, Italy and Russia all had conscription systems. Over 85% of men of military age in France and 50% in Germany had served in either the army or the navy. France had the highest proportion of its population in the army and the armies of both France and Germany had doubled between 1870 and 1914. Every year plans were updated. Each country stockpiled arms and supplies to their armies which ran into millions. The major rearmament programmes and offensive military doctrines made war almost inevitable. The world of 1914 had been living in almost a vacuum during the preceding 50 years. It was as though it, it, a bubble around them. <clears throat> a world of increasing technology, boys' toys, which became available to so many, but one which no one really took into account or considered the consequences of using them. The technology would change the way people thought, change the way they interacted, change diplomacy, change everything, but no one considered the consequences of using it. Incidentally, Germany knew that they couldn't match the dreadnoughts, although they tried, they built every country then started building a dreadnought of their own. But the Germans, of course, responded by building submarines. Generals like Malt, Joff, Conrad and other commanders put all their energies into this cult of the offensive. Seizing the initiative became the prime objective. The theory encouraged all the great powers to devise war plans that they could strike first to get the advantage either as a prelude to war or as a deterrent. And of course, I already mentioned the Schlieffen plan. Modern armies required detailed strategic mobilization plans. They were big, in other words, and cumbersome. This wasn't just somebody on a horse riding with a sword. They needed lots of equipment. Most mobilization plans typically involved transporting millions of men and their equipment by rail. Another new introduction, of course, railways had blossomed since the middle of the 19th century. So railways carried all of their equipment and they kept, of course, as railways used to do, 
to strict timetables. And it caused the historian AJP Taylor to comment that this was war by timetable. In 1969, Taylor wrote that the mobilization schedules were so rigid that once it was begun, they couldn't be cancelled without massive disruption throughout the country and military disorganization. Hence the Tsar's problem, because he'd only got part mobilization and he couldn't cope with that. There was also a theory that's been put forward in hindsight, and hindsight's always a wonderful thing, isn't it? 2020 vision. More recent times, it's a theory called dynamic differentials theory, which is a fancy way of saying that declining states initiate wars when they are still militarily superior. So it's a bit of a hollow tube idea that they've got lots of military power, but they may be being undermined at home. Classic example, of course, Russia. Russia, there was lots of internal turmoil, the Bolshevik revolution, etc., etc. But Russia had a zonking great big army and lots of soldiers and lots of military gunpowder. So it's the belief that if you have this declining situation but strong military power, you could stop rising states in their tracks. In such a situation, leaders of declining states see a war as a way to prevent the rising state overtaking its most powerful national system, thereby becoming a major security threat. Delaying war will only allow the upstart nation to gain more leverage and become stronger. Thus, it could be argued that the power transition, it was the power transition between Germany and Russia, not Germany and Great Britain, that was the real cause of the war. Specifically, German leaders had long feared that because Russia had such a large landmass, large resources, and a large population, in the long term, it was going to be a threat to smaller Germany's survival. This threat would be realized, the German leaders assessed, once Russia had completed a massive plan which it had for industrialization. Really, Russia coming into the 19th century, not the 20th century, but becoming industrialized. They were way, way, way behind Britain and, and the rest of Europe, but they were gradually catching up. And, and the Germans realized that once they did catch up, they were in trouble. You also have the rise of social Darwinism as a theory. Now, we're, we're familiar with Darwin's theory of evolution. This was kind of the political adjunct to that. And it influenced many European intellectuals and strategic thinkers throughout the 19th century. The theory, you'll be familiar with, emphasized the struggle between nations and races as a natural order that only the fittest could survive. It gave impetus to German assertiveness, particularly in Africa, as we learned from the very interesting talk about Africa, and significantly for the future, it just in an explanation of why some ethnic groups, such as the Germans and the Slavs, Russians, had been antagonistic to one another for so long. They were natural rivals the theory would have it. They were destined to clash. 
Many Germans, including Malt the Younger, you know, the dim one, saw Slavs as the natural opponents of the Teutonic race. Of course, this has echoes a few decades further on to some well-known person called Adolf. Germany thus began its own military build-up, particularly naval, in the hopes of maximising its power for war. German leaders increasingly saw as inevitable that war was to come. Before this build-up reached its conclusion, Berlin successfully pre prevented four major crises in the Balklands from becoming major war, mainly by restraining its Austrian ally enough to prevent it from provoking Russia to fight. So there's this kind of trade-off going on of, OK, we'll back you, but you can't fight yet. Don't, don't do it yet. German leaders also began educating the people on German national interests. Thus, in the event of war, it was thought, the public would be more motivated to fight. The German leaders preferred war in 1914, so the theory goes, uh, as it was their belief that German power by then would be at its zenith. The leaders in Berlin managed to build up its military forces in the years leading up to 1914. German leaders believed that a continental war had to be fought in 1914 because if they left it to 1917, Russia would have completed this re-industrialisation. <laughs> Thus it could be said that Germany actively sought war in 1914. By the end of July, it preferred war to a negotiated peace. It was being opportunist, in other words. A crisis had emerged. Oh, somebody assassinated someone in Sarajevo. Oh, that's a good excuse to go to war. It gave Austria most of what it wanted. Berlin thus took the steps necessary to prevent any kind of negotiated solutions. They were playing a game, a very dangerous game of negotiation, a non-negotiation. While at the same time, they were ensuring that Russia was blamed for the war because Russia announced mobilization first. So, you know, not us, they did it, they started it. Germans themselves were reassured by their Kaiser and their Chancellor that German neighbors had forced the sword into their hands. Apologies for the quote at the bottom there. But that was in the newspaper, the Daily Mirror on the 2nd of August, 1914. That was the headline, that the sword had been forced into the hand of Germany. Germany had to take action. You do have to remember that hindsight's a wonderful thing. For the victors of war, it's easy to point a finger at Germany and its allies to blame for starting the war. They lost. Thus, Article 231 of the Treaty of Versailles set vast reparations to be paid by Germany. Make Germany pay, was the cry. During the war, propaganda depicted the Kaiser literally in league with the devil and determined on the conquest of Europe. So propaganda played a huge important part and the Germans were really depicted as the bad guys, the Hun. However, in the interwar years, views were very heavily influenced by the economist Maynard Keynes, and he of course was a pro-German sympathiser, and a large number of documents uh, became available to cast doubt 
on the Versailles assessment of who was to blame. Germany's innocence was highlighted by The Economist and the responsibility definitely shifted to both France and Russia. Britain was also drawn into this accusation for failing to prevent the escalation of the July crisis. So we're really starting to throw the blame out there uh, and blame whom we can. Thus, in the interwar years, the idea surfaced that the war had not been deliberately unleashed. A bit back to David Lloyd George's statement that we'd slithered over the brink into war. And such views were supported by pointing to the apparent failure of the old alliance system to prevent hostilities from breaking out. Now, the alliances, and I've touched upon them earlier, you have the triple alliance and the triple entente. They were the participants. The entente, sometimes known as the entente cordiale, was Britain, France and Russia. And don't forget, France and Russia were Britain's traditional enemies. After all, we'd whopped the French, we'd whopped Napoleon, we'd kept the Russians at bay, but we were now their friends by the late 19th century. Meanwhile, the Triple Alliance was Germany, Austria-Hungary and Italy. The main force behind the alliances was really to maintain the balance of power, because they cozied up to one another and said, yes, well, I'll, I'll, I'll defend you, yeah, I'll support you if you don't go to war with so-and-so, and, and, and it was all tit for tat. And that worked quite well throughout the 19th century, the latter part of the 19th century. But don't forget, technology uh, had overtaken, and all these new inventions and new ways of going to warfare were coming along, and with them, lots of ideas about grabbing land and asserting power and keeping smaller nations under the thumb. One of the unintended consequences of the alliance is that whilst they improved relationships with Britain, Russia and France, it tended to push the Germans away. They became kind of second-rate friends and it pushed them towards Austria-Hungary. And of course, Austria-Hungary was going to go to war with Serbia. Austria-Hungary was trying to keep Serbia under control. As AJP Taylor put it, the alliance created an excessively rigid diplomatic framework within which relatively small detonators could produce huge explosions. I would be failing if I didn't mention, last but by no means least, Lenin's interpretation, because it's fairly significant, fairly obvious. Lenin thought that the war was caused by the monopoly of capitalists. They went to war because they wanted to control markets and raw materials. Fairly typical, you can almost predictable sort of interpretation, but nonetheless important, and it was there. So, who was to blame? We've got all these nuances, all of these things going on. My own personal opinion is that arrogance, greed, pomposity, blind ignorance, jealousy, and massive underestimation of reality, warmongering, and wholesale ineptitude all shared the causes. And they were all amongst all of the different nations. There was no one nation that had the monopoly of all of those failings. They were there.
amongst them all. Historians tend to blame the Kaiser and his chief military advisers. More recently, the spotlight has shifted towards the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians, and to a lesser extent, the Serbians. A modern theory is that the governments of all the main powers preferred war to diplomatic defeat that month. And it was hard to point a finger at any single participant. Nearer the truth, none of the major powers worked as hard as they could have done to prevent war. But the decision taken by Austria-Hungary, backed by Germany, the blank check, to emasculate Serbia was the moment a general conflict became probable, if not inevitable. The decision was taken in the firm belief that if the Entente powers chose to fight, they would be defeated, and if they did not, the Entente would collapse. The Central Powers could not lose, or so they thought. So you've got this overpowering belief in their own superiority. Few historians agree wholly with the idea of a premeditated war to achieve an aggressive foreign policy aims, but it's generally accepted that Germany's share of responsibility was perhaps somewhat larger than the other great powers. Finally, the current consensus on why it broke out is that there's no consensus. After a hundred years of arguing about the war's causes, the long debate is set to continue. We haven't reached a conclusion, but I have. <laughs> The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.